All right, guys, welcome to another episode of the podcast. I have myself, Brian Gold, my co-host, Squints, and our new friend, Dr. Kate. Thanks for coming on. Thanks yeah. for arranging it. Thanks so much for letting me, for inviting me. Of course. Yeah. Um, usually we start off with, you know, a little background on who you are, mm -hmm. um, how you got to what you're doing today, and just, you know, a little bit of stuff we talked about off camera and let everybody know, and then we'll kind of dive around and see which way we go. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm a clinical and forensic psychologist and a certified sex therapist, and I also founded a group therapy practice called Modern Intimacy. Um, and I host a podcast called Get Naked with Dr. Kate. Awesome. It's really fun. Yeah. So my practice right now focuses on helping people around that intersection of mental health, relationships, sexuality, healing from trauma, things like that. And I got started in this work initially more on the forensic side of psychology, which is where psychology meets the legal system somewhere. And so I was working in different prisons, uh, primarily with convicted sex offenders or sexually violent persons, doing a lot of evaluations, treatment, and working with the courts to help assess their readiness for parole. And eventually I transferred out of that and got into private practice more. So that's where I am now. I'm still digesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. Obviously, it's a <laughs> that's a lot to unpack really quickly. Can um, be a can be a dark place, I'm sure. I'm sure how was a lot it? of everything. Mm -hmm. How was it working in the prison system and were people getting the help they needed or was progress being made throughout it? I think that there are a lot of systems that are well intended, but they're generally underfinanced and under resourced. So a lot of prison systems, at least the bulk of the prison systems that I've been in, the, the treatment is not what it could be. And so there are a lot of folks who kind of engage with it because they're bored. And then there are some people who are really motivated to get better. And so they'll make use of anything that's available. But the bulk of the folks who we worked with just really, in my opinion, weren't getting the kind of care that would benefit them in the long run. I think that's just what happens when we have prison systems that are completely overcrowded and really under-resourced. Is there a solution or? <laughs> well, there are people with pay grades higher than mine that probably have those answers, but uh, pie in the sky, I think we have to just really change the whole system and look at it from a humanitarian perspective and approach what we're actually doing to help people rehabilitate in a way that optimizes their humanity instead of dehumanizes them and makes them more desperate and more rooted in survival. So there are other prison systems across the world that do this much better and have much lower recidivism rates, but the U.S. hasn't gotten there yet. I won't go too far down that rabbit hole. <laughs> um, what caused the transition from that into private practice? Well, when you work in a prison, you're you're kind of in a prison all day, and yeah. that is really hard. It's hard for the people who are incarcerated in such huge ways, and it can also be really challenging for the staff. Um, so I, I got pretty burnt out working in a system that was just so under-resourced and demanded so much in terms of 
paperwork and bureaucracy, I really felt like clinically I was super limited in what I could offer to the folks who really needed that care. Um, so I wanted to go into a system, a private system where I could create more curriculum and bring more innovation and really bring more of the empirically validated treatments to folks who wanted to get better. Are you still treating some of those? I don't even know how to classify it. that group. Patients? Yeah, those patients. Um, Incarcerated patients? No, meaning outside of that want help that, you know, you may have interacted with or just other people that had those issues that want to get better. Well, I think that folk, a lot of folks who end up in prison are there because they don't have the coping skills or the resources to survive in life. And so they are doing things that are against the law and they're often doing it because it's the best way they know how to move through the world, right? So when we take that, if you want to call it a, a concern, and um, bring it out into non-incarcerated folks, lots of other people are living that way too. They're living from their trauma, they're living with limited resources or not enough coping skills, but they either haven't done things that have broken the law or they haven't been caught. Right. So, so yeah, I would say that a lot of what I was working with, with folks who are incarcerated is healing from trauma, addressing emotional regulation skills, learning how to improve their communication skills. And that's a lot of what we do in private practice too. Gotcha. Yeah. How do people find you in, in, in private practice? How does that come about? Is it just a socially inbox or word of mouth type of thing? Yeah, we get referrals from lots of different places, other therapists, other uh, medical or legal professionals, um, uh, social media, of course, our website, my podcast, um, our cl the clinicians on my team talking to other clinicians, and then, of course, word of mouth recommendations. Yeah. yeah. What would you say the... Because the... some of it is more like recreational of like, somebody trying to experiment more in the relationship and not necessarily healing from trauma. What's a day to like a day, a, a day like it can be all over the place probably, huh? Yeah, I don't think people need to have a, prob a, a problem right, yeah. to go to therapy. A lot of folks go to therapy because they want to be more exploratory of who they are or what could be better in their relationship or they want to get ahead of things like breakdowns in communication. So we do a lot of work with people across lots of different goals. Sometimes those goals are helping people repair a rupture in their relationship or open their relationship, or maybe start to explore some kind of kink or something more expansive in their sexuality. Um, we work with a lot of folks who are healing from different kinds of trauma, but a lot of it, a lot of the work that we do is really about helping people just find a rhythm, find a groove, find a place that aligns with their values in life and really allows them to feel super empowered and like they're living the life that is meaningful and interesting and dynamic for them. How do you feel trauma has affected people that don't even know they experienced trauma? It, you know, could have been a young age and they're like, oh, I had an amazing childhood. I know I had a fuck childhood. There was a ton of trauma, but I'm you know, I've ran across people. Oh, it was amazing. This and that. I'm like, something's missing. <laughs> something's missing here, and I just can't yeah. put my finger on it. Yeah. Well, I would say a lot of folks probably fall into that camp because culturally, our definition of trauma has been historically pretty narrow. And in the last probably ten years, I think we're expanding what that means, and people are understanding 
that there can be big T traumas, like really big pivotal events that you you can't look at and say, oh yeah, that wasn't impactful, right? Um, but then there are lots of little T traumas. And these are the kinds of things that a lot of folks may not look at and say that was traumatic, but over time, the accumulation of these little pokes, right, really build up and the impacts in people's mind and body can be pretty huge. So unresolved trauma can look like people really having difficulty um, communicating with folks, being able to understand how they're feeling and express how they're feeling. It can look like not being able to regulate their emotions. So they might be more explosive or they might shut down instead of being able to stay in a window of tolerance in their body that allows them to know what's going on with them and communicate it in a way that's assertive, boundaried, open, and, and appropriately guarded, right? So folks can be either like too guarded or not guarded enough if they have a lot unresolved trauma, and then that can create um, more difficulties in their relationships going forward. And then are we talking guarded in just friendships or guarded in relationships? All different kinds of relationships, professionally, socially, sexually, romantically, even with their family. You know, we our brains are primed to detect threat more so than anything else. So when people have unresolved trauma, they can be a little bit more self-protective and it can make their connection with other people, romantically, sexually, familially, um, and so on, a, a little bit more limiting because it's hard to connect when you don't feel safe, ultimately. How do you feel about the current uh, climate in in the workplace or in public spaces in general between men and women. And I kind of, you know, we went through the Me Too movement and COVID, which made everybody uh, even more standoffish. I'm sure you've seen a rise in like people not knowing how to interact with each other. Mm -hmm. And especially in, in that space, I think men are now more afraid of uh, speaking their mind in those kind of terms because it's, frowned upon and obviously for good reason but you know we're in a, a, a time where everybody's kind of on edge or worried about the way somebody's going to take something there's a there's a lot that you just said yeah <laughs> <laughs> um okay i think that right now we are experiencing a huge shift in the ways that we relate to each other that has been a long time in the making and so it is really hard when we're going through systemic change to figure out what the new norm is going to be. But I think it's a really good thing. I think it's good that men are uncomfortable behaving in ways that maybe we're less conscious with women, because I don't think that that benefits women, obviously, but it doesn't benefit men either, right? And I think a lot of men are now approaching a crossroads and they have this great opportunity to show up in the world differently and to show up for themselves differently and in their male friendships differently and with women differently. And when they lean into that, wow, is it juicy and fun and rewarding and exciting. And they're usually pretty thrilled with how rich their relationships become with women and especially with other men. And then there are some men who are saying, I don't want to change. I don't want to have to evolve emotionally. I don't want to step into this space. I'm scared or I shouldn't have to. And those men are struggling right now. And I have a lot of empathy for that. And at the same time, 
the the antidote to their loneliness and the antidote to their frustration is this growth. But often when it's scary or when we've been told that that's not the path that is masculine, it's really hard for some men to lean into that space. But I'm seeing a lot more men doing it and it really feels hopeful. And my, my hope with men is that they'll reach back to the other men who maybe don't know how to get there and they'll say, hey, come on, I can show you how to do this. It's not scary. And there is manliness on the other side, right? I think that promise that men can extend to one another is is the scaffolding that mm -hmm. helps us move through this kind of awkward awkward phase in our culture where things are really radically different and women are having their own evolution yeah and it's beautiful right they're saying like wow we have to have better boundaries we have to show up differently too um we can be more egalitarian and then here's what that means and the accountabilities that we take on but it's it's a progress and everyone's entering um, from their own baseline, right? It's not one continuous baseline. So we're going to see a lot of this happening for a while until there are some new norms. And that can be really hard because people ultimately want connection and they want connection in with a romantic partner and they want that to feel good and enlivening and vitalizing. And when there's ambiguity, sometimes we don't know what to do and then that creates a lot of anxiety yeah. which creates defensiveness that was really well said very well said yeah aside from you know i guess like even guys finding like jimmy's group how do people find a safe space a safe space to want to even attempt to explore stick in a pinky toe and just you know because you say therapy or any of that and people are like I don't need therapy. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot of ways to go about making change. Some people prefer to do it one-on-one -on -one with a therapist, and that's great. They can totally say, like, yep, I'm going to be vulnerable in this one space with this one person. And once that feels safe enough, I can generalize what I'm learning to other relationships. And then some people find a lot of benefit in being with a small group. So I've seen a lot of men get together and they start reading books that really challenge them and challenge their ideas of masculinity and give them in the voice of other men some path forward. And I think that's really promising because women have been trying to interact with men and help men do this for a long time. And that's part of the dynamic that makes things really uncomfortable because women have been socialized to be far more relational and responsible for relationships and men haven't. So women are working overtime trying to um, have the relationships, make the relationships go well. And they can't help men out of this because the biggest wound that I see with men is a lack of relationship with other men that is intimate. And I don't mean sexually intimate, but you know, emotionally intimate. Yeah. So I think men really leaning in and, and creating that space, not finding it, but creating the space is really what's important. So get together with a couple of guys that you know and feel safe enough with to establish some group boundaries and agreements and then start learning together, have discussions together and really lean in and let yourselves be vulnerable. I've been through therapy since a young age. So for me, it doesn't scare me or opening up and I've been on a different journey lately of just spiritually and wanting to grow in other ways, but does it just have to click for that person to want to get the change and really want to look, can't really 
force them towards the path. And even when you're in a relationship with someone, people are guilty of saying, oh, my partner needs to change instead of just looking on the inside and saying, hey, continue to grow yourself. And they might tag along, they might not, but why are you so worried about somebody else changing? And yeah. people tend to have that skewed perception of they need to change for me to change. Yeah. Work on yourself and keep going. Totally, totally. I don't remember who I learned this from, but someone once said, anytime you're pointing the finger at somebody else, remember you've got three fingers pointing back at you. Wow. Right? And I think that's super profound in its yeah. simplicity because it's easy for us to abscond our own accountability yeah. and say, oh, this, this out here is the problem, right? But when we do lean in and go, what can I change? How can I be different? What is it like? to be in a room with me or a relationship with me and what am I responsible for? That's where we actually have power, right? And it's really, really impactful when we start looking inward first and becoming who we wanna be around. And then, then we're going to gravitate toward other people who wanna be around us in that authenticity and they're going to align. Mm. Yeah, most people are afraid to take that leap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to look at our, our shadowy parts or our maybe less shiny parts. When we look back at our childhoods, and I think America obviously has like a broken home issue that we kind of, starting in, you know, the 70s, 80s, we kind of have this generation of kids that, one, weren't raised by their parents at all, let alone... Uh, in dual parent homes in most cases, you know, um, a lot of that comes up as you start to deal with these, uh, with this going back into trauma and, and even the little stuff that, uh, um, people aren't realizing that they've experienced when it wasn't so bad, but it was just kind of things were off in a certain way. Yeah. Humans, and up until the agricultural revolution, we didn't live in single family households like we do now. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think about uh, a one parent home being a broken home, but I do think it's important to look at how our systems are set up and they're set up to support an economic value system that prioritizes single family households. Yeah. Right. So when we look at how that is really difficult and outside of how humans historically have raised children we used to raise children communally and in groups and we used to live closer together and when people did that there were more resources to go around there was more safety so we could argue less trauma at least trauma related to poverty or uh, neglectful parents or um, you know not getting enough of what you need yeah it's true. We come from a tribal setting and it was a little bit different of a, and uh, even in, you know, the developed world during that time, it was still a, a communal setting, right? Yeah. 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 And everybody just worries about inside of their household. There's no longer really community or any of that involved. Yeah. And kids drop the parents drop their kids off at school and somebody else is teaching them whatever they're teaching them and mm -hmm. they're learning whatever habits they learn. Yeah. Since you work in like a taboo setting in some ways, you know, I was watching something recently that was talking about taboos controlling cultures, basically, because whatever we're comfortable with, not in the law setting, guys, you've seen both sides working in the prison system, but it's not necessarily the, the, the non-consensual stuff. 
just in general of like, you know, they said that the taboos are what controls the society, not as much as like the laws. You can make a law, but people either abide or disobey the law based on how relative it is to the situation. Mm -hmm. And as we have a time where like taboos and everything are kind of merging and, and combining and, and going in all these directions, I think you kind of are in the forefront of like people opening up about things that they feel are taboo in a certain way or that they're uncomfortable speaking on. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of stigmas in our world around mental health, around sexuality, or around any kind of relationship that might deviate from, I don't like the word, I don't want to use the word deviate, um, depart from kind of a heteronormative um, relationship orientation, monogamy, monogamous heteronormative relationship. So when people come in to work with someone like me, they do often feel a lot of shame if what they are interested in or how they are comporting their life is different than the expectation they have for how it should be. And so when we look at the role that taboos play, it's kind of like a magnetic charge, right? There will be some people who do this with the taboos and, and they're going to stay away and it's not interesting. It's too scary. And then there will be some people who are like taboo, gimme, I'm all over it. Yeah. And, and they want it because it's taboo and taboo elicits in us fear. It elicits um, a sense of polarity around power. So we either feel powerless or powerful, depending on how we engage with taboos. We feel in control or out of control. We feel safe or afraid. And so we have to look at the way that taboos influence our nervous system functioning and what it does for us. For some folks, it will shut them down. And for others, it's what creates a sense of vitality in them. So taboo stuff is really interesting and, and it does give us a lot of charge in our society, especially when it comes to identity and the way that we organize in our little groups. You know, our mm -hmm. family is a group, our workplace is a group, but our other identities mean give us membership in other groups too. And so group dynamics have a lot to do with managing what is taboo or defining what is taboo. So in this group, we don't do that. So that whatever that is becomes a taboo. And then this group's membership is defined by staying away from that. But it's not like everyone in that group stays away from it. They just say they do. <laughs> or they just don't talk about it. Or they don't talk about it. Right. So it's really interesting, the kind of arbitrary nature of taboos and how they organize so much of the way we decide who we belong with and how we get resources in this world. Yeah. Yeah, and different, you know, I didn't really think about it before, but different friend groups we hang out with, you know, you act a certain way or don't say certain shit, and other groups you can truly be yourself and nobody really cares what the hell comes out of your mouth. I think in society in general, we're in a space right now where it's harder for people to be themselves in a certain way because they're afraid. Everything is very uh, polarized right now, right? Yeah. And we're in a space where people are very, uh, very strongly opinionated on, on a very polarized scale of like what is acceptable and things that we used to commonly be able to accept and, and look at are like there's a 
line in the sand that's kind of drawn hard where people are on one side or the other. And the people in the middle that are kind of like, aren't really choosing sides are kind of voiceless at the moment because they're, you know, used to just be an asshole if you said something that somebody didn't like, right? And we knew that there was people all around that people considered, you know, that didn't have a filter or whatever else or could pop off and say something that was offensive mm -hmm. and that's just was just acceptable at this point it's people still there's still people without a filter but in certain social settings and business settings there's like some really heavy implications to people speaking their mind anymore which is which is dangerous in a certain sense because you know an open dialogue allows us to to grow as as uh you know as society in general but I feel like people, you know, I feel like a lot of intelligent people are, are really staying away from the subject in general because it's, uh, they're fearful of what somebody might think or say or what they have to lose and protect the people that they care about based on their actual thoughts about a, 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 yeah. an idea or a, or a thing, you know? Yeah, we don't have a, a call in culture. We have a call out culture yeah. and that can create a lot of fear for people. And it keeps people more polarized because when you're so afraid that you're going to be called out or canceled for something, then you don't know how to think critically about it because you're so engaged in fear, right? And at the same time, there have been many people and groups of people who have sort of abused their privileges in our culture and continue to weaponize ignorance or weaponize attitudes that do dehumanize or um, harm other people, right? So when there isn't a space where we can call in and see change, that does create a lot of tension in a culture. And it just keeps people more and more afraid of leaning in and learning more because of the real life consequences that can happen, but also the psychological consequences, right? Like I work with a lot of people who are trying to deconstruct misogyny and sexism and they're deconstructing racism and they're really trying to understand their privileges and how those privileges have influenced their relationships and the way they show up and how they feel about themselves. And one of the things that happens when people start doing that work is they often feel a tremendous amount of guilt and shame and grief <laughs> around how they've understood the world and how it has hurt them and hurt the people they care about or hurt other people. Um, and when you start to do that work, it can bring up these big feelings, right? So I think psychologically, a lot of folks are really afraid to lean into it because I think on some level, we all know when something is hurtful to someone else. We just don't know why we think that way or why it's wrong or how we got there or what to do about it. So a lot of folks stay stuck in that fear. Fear controls people in multiple ways. Yeah. Yeah. What are some, uh, what are some basic starter points for somebody that wants to open up in a relationship or share their feelings and they're afraid that there will be some judgment from their significant other. Or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, 
sometimes there is judgment. So it's, I think, good to explore whether or not there are safety concerns that might need to be addressed before you can be more vulnerable. Um, but when there aren't any safety concerns, I think it's really powerful to start by checking in with your partner and saying, hey, are you in a headspace to talk about something that's kind of hard for me and vulnerable for me? But give your partner the ability to be in a space where they can actually hear you. You know, so often it's building in a partner for a long time and they want to say something and it's scary and they'll blurt it out to their partner like while they're, while they're like doing laundry and trying to get the kids ready for school or making breakfast and like in a time where their brain is not on that page. And so they their partner feels caught off guard or doesn't say the right thing, doesn't know what to say or dismisses it because they're in the busyness of whatever they're doing. And so then they that partner who was so vulnerable feels dropped or shamed or judged when maybe their partner at a different time could have been so much more present and open and, and willing to hold space for them. So that's a first step is like, yeah. really make sure you're setting yourselves up for success that's in these conversations. It is. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you're right. We don't take, like we, we take for granted the space, like yeah. we can be in our head and be selfish in certain moments and then have this all come out at once. And you can just be completely caught off guard and like, uh, where's this coming from? Yeah. You know, go ahead, please. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> as we start to like dive into that, that space. Um, yeah, I think it's hard in general to be, it's a shame, but it's like hard in general to be vulnerable and honest for most people. I think especially men though. Yeah. Yes more so but i think in and vice versa i don't want to say obviously men have a harder time expressing their their feelings feelings needs wants sometimes yeah I, I guess you're right well i'm glad you brought that up actually there's like a whole thing called normative male alexithymia what does that mean in regular <laughs> english yeah i know right <laughs> It's like a weird, a big, big term. So normative male alexithymia basically means, well, I'll start with alexithymia. That is a term that means somebody has a hard time understanding their own feelings. So they feel the feelings, but they don't really know how to label them. They can't necessarily distinguish between the nuance of different feelings. They just feel something really big, right? And then they have a hard time labeling it, naming it, and communicating that to someone else. So what that usually does is it creates a lot of physiological sensation, but the mind doesn't know what to do with it. So it can create like a, a fear of like being overwhelmed by that feeling. And so the normative male alexithymia part comes in because gender role conditioning is such that so many men for so long are conditioned to not feel the way they feel. The only feelings that a lot of men are given permission to express are anger or happiness or pride. So little things, not little things, but you know, other Can't feelings stop. like, bless you, bless you. Um, other feelings like shame, fear, you know, are attributed to being weakness. And so those are the things that men are told they shouldn't feel and definitely shouldn't communicate. And when little boys are communicated that over and over again, it actually creates like a bit of dissociation or distancing from their emotions. And so that's where there's this separation between 
their ability to have more understanding of their emotions and communicate it versus being alexithymic later in their adult life. So it is more prevalent for men to kind of have um, gaps in their ability to understand themselves because they've been so conditioned to abandon that part of their humanity as a condition of their membership in the club of masculinity. Then you stack trauma on that and it was slippery slope. Exactly. Exactly. I'm really good at putting myself in a hole and not mm. coming out. Yeah. I'm sorry. Working through it over the years, just I acknowledge I have that mm -hmm. issue and it's one of those things where you just work through it. Yeah. You know, obviously yeah. sitting in a hole or staying in quiet doesn't work. Doesn't. Yeah. A lot of men talk about that, right? They just sort of like withdraw and sink into themselves because the feelings get really big and really hard. Um, and then some men, you know, stuff, 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 and then they get explosive rage. That's like the one feeling that they're permitted to express, right? Yeah. Um, so it, it erupts in them and they often feel a tremendous amount of shame after that, but they keep stuffing, stuffing, stuffing. And so it becomes this cycle of shoving the feelings down and then they erupt and explode. And men feel often feel really like controlled by those feelings and they want to feel more in control of regulating their feelings. So if that's something that you struggle with, if you're going to be vulnerable with a partner, it's really good practice to start regulating your emotions more effectively. So that could look like meditating, talking to other people about your feelings, journaling, different breathing exercises, like things that are portable that you can take with you that no one knows you're doing or needs to know that you're doing so that you get in the habit of being more um, curious and uh, investigative with what's going on in you. That's huge. And I think more awareness needs to be brought to that topic just going around because you see everything on social media everything you know there's different opinions on all of it and just yeah. men don't really talk about their feelings or any of that or how we stuff 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 and then everybody's like well he's an asshole because he just popped off it just you can only stuff for so long exactly yeah there is a, a big gap in uh content obviously like men's emotional content mm -hmm. i guess it's completely as you said that i start to think and i'm like there is no like everybody i, I see is is masculine business this successful like we have this image to portray that like uh everything is together and strong and you know you want to be alpha and a leader and this and the opposite side of that is is not is almost non-existent yeah you know yeah. i can think of not very many things i've seen i've scrolled across where somebody's like you know ex you know a man a, a an alpha male-ish type is talking to another man about trying to understand his feelings or open up about uh what he's experiencing you know I think privately let alone publicly i see it sometimes in like the the military space of guys coming back from overseas that have had some real you know experience some real first-hand trauma mm. that they kind of go into those spaces a little bit mm. or share with each other because there's such a high rate of uh of suicide and things in those natures PTSD. and ptsd and that but not like a you know it's, it's probably something that we could use a little bit more of, at least to have some balance to the the way that we are portraying ourselves to the public yeah i mean when you go to the gym you don't just do upper body 
all the time and neglect your legs and your lower body. And There's some guys that do that. Well, <laughs> well <laughs> yeah. fair point. But but ideally, you don't just work your upper body and neglect your lower body or vice versa. You don't just do legs all the time every day and don't do any upper body. The same is true if we if we neglect our emotional development and our relational development, then we're lopsided as yeah. humans, right? And so if all your, nurture, your nourishing is like your intellectual development, then you're going to be the guy who goes to the gym and only does upper body and doesn't do legs, right? So, so really like creating a lot of um, movement in your life so that you're developing relationally, emotionally, and intellectually is the best way to show up as a really integrated, powerful human being. And I don't mean power over other people, but like empowered within. Yeah. I think that it's a, I mean, it's a very powerful place for, uh, you know, we're trying to build ourselves as these, uh, you know, men want to be wanted and imagine how, um, if females are continuously telling us that we're emotionally unavailable, then how, how attractive is it to find somebody that is emotionally available or willing to go down that path from a male point of view? Totally. I think we're totally leaving something on the table, a mm-hmm. huge point of like, you know, if, if you're looking, I mean, men try to garner wealth and cars and these things to attract females and maybe all they need to do is Learn open it. up a little bit and learn how to communicate and maybe that's <laughs> That'll bring the same the same attention to them that they were looking for in the first place. Yeah. Probably in a better probably bring a better attention to themselves than yeah. they were getting with the opposite. Yeah, and a more secure attention, right? Yeah. Because money's in car money and cars, yeah, of course they're lovely. That's fun, great. But unless you have a completely transactional relationship, that's not enough to sustain a relationship. Right. So it's gonna be really boring and annoying for both partners if there's not more there to create cohesion. And a lot of men I know have this idea that they need to be over six feet tall and they need to have a six pack and make six figures and just have like all of these things, these external things in order to be worthy of relationship or or to think that women will want them. But I work with, I have worked with hundreds, if not like thousands of women in my career at this point. And what I hear from the women who date men and, and partner with men consistently is that they really don't give a fuck about the money or the cars. But what they want is that connection. And when that connection's not there, then they do start looking at, okay, well, what other resources exist in this relationship, right? So by depriving themselves of that emotional connection, men are continuing to objectify themselves and put themselves in this box of kind of like who's left and what do I get out of that relationship. So the women that I work with really, really want something that is more egalitarian in their relationships. And they're making money now. They don't need the money from men. They want a connection. They want partnership. Yeah, it's big. I mean, I've growing up and being around uh, you know, the Los Angeles scene for I'm 42 years old. It's it's funny you say that because the biggest like playboy type characters that I've ever met have never been uh, 
what you would expect in that nature, you know, mm -hmm. or the, the, the men that attracted the most women have always been kind of like offbeat, mm -hmm. maybe heavy set, all shapes and sizes, mm -hmm. but maybe they're a little bit more uh, fun to be around, have a better sense of humor, a little more open and less judging in, in their demeanor and ways. Mm -hmm. I've seen that these type of people attract uh, everybody to them, not just the opposite sex, but in general, just because of their uh, lightness and uh, uh, approach to life in general, right? So we don't uh, give enough credit to what a good a good personality can can uh, can do for us. It's one thing that we don't try to like overly develop, like or even look into. Self help doesn't really revolve around that, you know. I mean, there's a section for it, of course, mm -hmm. but we tend to leave that off the table. Everything's very mechanical and less. Uh, you know, maybe I need to develop my myself personally and my personality to try to uh, be a better human being in this in this setting. Totally. Yeah, just thinking back to our conversation with Stefano of just how disconnected people are these days, sexually and everything else, just because everything's at your fingertips on your phone. Yeah, that's a great topic um, for you as well. It's like he was talking about the the male. Um, the male rate at losing their virginity and the age at which they are losing their virginity is getting exceedingly higher um, to what it used to be. And in this this space where um, instead of being taboo, people can go down their own rabbit hole of what they're into and there's a space for them privately and they don't need to put themselves out there in the dating world anymore. If they can have transactional relationships. And he went as far as saying like in an AI world where you're dealing with a robot almost is upon us at this point where people can be sexual with something that isn't, isn't another human being in general. And that's like a safe space for them. Yeah, it, it can be a safer space emotionally for a lot of people if they have a lot of fears or they don't have the kinds of social skills um to feel really confident interacting with folks or if they have a lot of rejection sensitivity um but going down that path exclusively kind of amplifies those fears oh we're not yeah yeah i'm not debating that i'm just saying right. like how many people actually sit down and have a conversation like the three of us are having right now with no cell phones no distractions yeah. you go to dinner i like to eat out breakfast lunch and dinner just that's just me and I love to people watch everybody is on their goddamn phone yeah yeah they are but that's a great way to sort of start right the process is maybe put away your phones get together with some people that you feel safe enough with safe enough that you can lean into a growth edge and and maybe get a card deck that has questions on it if you don't even know where to start and just you know pull a card or ask each other questions. Be curious about each other's inner experiences, right? Who cares about what car you drive or what your job title is or any of that? What do you think about when you're alone? What do you want for your life? Who are you without all of these external trappings? When you create and, and lead in your relationships with who you are, you'll begin to be valued for who you are. If you lead with the cars, the money, or your looks, or whatever, then that's what you're going to be most valued for, right? So it's a shift. Very well said. Yeah, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier. We have power 
to change how we show up in the world. And when we change up, when we change that up, we start to align with other kinds of people and have different experiences. Processing. <laughs> There's plenty of work to do, Pinky. Seriously. Fuck. <laughs> um, what what would you like to share with the viewers or listeners that uh that we haven't touched um oh gosh what do you what is important to you <laughs> as a or even part of your process mm -hmm. you know that you would like to get out there in terms of and in, in, in terms of you know your practice and 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 what is needed you know what is the the what are you most passionate about in in helping others you know, and where would you like to, to, to go with that? Yeah. Well, maybe something that is like a small digestible bite is to think about the fact that pleasure is a human right. And I don't just mean sexual pleasure, but of course, sexual pleasure is included in that. What is not a right or an entitlement is sex with another person, right? That requires consent. But pleasure is a right. And I think a lot of folks feel that they have to earn pleasure in order to really experience it and, and really um, surrender into it. And so there's a lot of folks running around this world sort of depriving themselves of little pleasures and then indulging in big pleasures in this sort of like whiplashy way that creates a lot of entitlement around pleasure, but also a lot of deprivation. So I might offer that one thing that people can do that's kind of a simple day-to-day -day thing is create a pleasure practice. It doesn't have to be sexual, but there can be sexual things. And, and I encourage you to think about things that are not attached to um, a, a material experience. It can be material, but try to appreciate the non-material elements of it. So if you really love Krispy Kremes, go get a donut, right? And like, let that be your pleasure for the day. Speaking of language. <laughs> and <laughs> savor it. Yeah. Yeah, like really savor it, like taste it, chew it, listen to yourself chewing it, smell it, have a sensory experience with that pleasure and really like let yourself soak it in and then go about the rest of your day. And when people take this little shift of engaging in little moments of pleasure, they really start to have a, a different relationship with the world and with their day-to-day -day activities. Even the activities that are annoying, if you can find just two minutes of pleasure a day or curate that for yourself, it's a challenge that's worth, worth going through. I agree. I agree, and it's a very easy one to attempt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the savor is a good word though, because you, you mentioned that. Because sometimes we get in the habit of like habitual things that we don't even savor or experience mm -hmm. fully because we're in a rush or it is like a a, a craving type of situation. Um, but you're right. Yeah, it's it's a little little pleasures. Um, there was a store not too far from here when I was growing up. It was called Little Pleasures. It was like a smoke shop. Nice. But that's what they called it. it. It was cool when you said that. It, I brought that to mind. Um, yeah, because it can be little things that uh, you know can help us find peace. Yeah. And grow. Well, I think you know the way culture is now. Everything's 
their attention spans three seconds, maybe five on a good day. Mm -hmm. People just want to get on to the next and they don't really sit there and enjoy being the moment. How many events do you go to where you see everybody pulling out their phone, taking photos and not actually enjoying that moment you paid for to be there with whichever person and just take it all in to share with others. Yeah. And like, I love going to concerts or I'm a comedy guy and I love when they have a no cell phone policy. Mm -hmm. Great. That means everybody gets to be in the moment. There's no cell phones, lights, all this stuff. And now I got to fucking stare through the guy holding his hand up. No, I just want to sit down and enjoy it. I snap a picture when I sit down nine times out of 10, I don't even post it mm -hmm. just because I'm, I like to be in the moment. Like mm -hmm. I like to disconnect and well, it's interesting that language because in in some senses you're disconnecting like you're disconnecting from the noise but you're actually connecting Correct. with yourself or with with the people around you or with the experience and i think that's a really important reframe right because we do get really disconnected with our technology we get super like you know running around in our phones and we're not present with ourselves we're not present with the people around us so separating from your technology sometimes and really just engaging in your five senses can bring you a much different um, and a stronger connection with yourself and with the people around you. Yeah, that's why I love riding my motorcycle or racing. Like mm -hmm. I'm used to desert racing with zero reception for 12 days. Oh, wow. I got a satellite phone if I need to make a phone call back home. But outside of that, you're in the moment. I'm in the moment, but I elements, but I also feel like just grounded at peace without yeah. without all of those distractions. I know once I cross this border, my phone no longer works. Mm -hmm. All right, yeah. see it in twelve days or however long that race might be, and it's just kind of fun. And you know, some people look at me crazy for going to do something dangerous, but on the other hand, that's what it takes for me to feel free but disconnect from mm -hmm. all the noise. Yeah. Nice. Uh, back to the little pleasures thing. I think that in a world of continuous like optimization where everybody's trying to optimize, we see in like educated spaces and in tech spaces, everybody trying to optimize life to the this advantage on this schedule and this thing. It's so, uh, it's begun to feel so unnatural. And like, we can't take time to enjoy ourselves for even a second. It's like, why do I want to live forever to experience nothing when I could just indulge a little bit and, ex and have this pleasant moment for whatever brief period of time it is, you know? What if it wasn't even an indulgence, right? Yeah. What if pleasure became part of your self-care practice and allowed you to be more productive? in these spaces where you want to be optimized or more productive. I think it's it's an interesting paradox, again, the way people do like, optimize, but they're often depriving themselves. Mm -hmm. And then what does that do? It creates scarcity in our, in our mind, in our body, in our psyche. And that is a hard place to be your best self from. So shifting paradoxically into a pleasure practice on the daily is a way of giving yourself these things that you need or want or enjoy and that's a natural dopamine right and when you are sourcing yourself with that pleasure it creates more fuel for creativity for vitality and for 
a position of having enough of gratitude or, or perhaps what you need in some instances. Pleasure is not going to solve for poverty, of course, or um, health concerns and things like that. But but pleasure can be a bit of natural medicine. I mean, health concerns could, uh, I think if we take it a little bit easier and we're not so stressed out, then maybe our long-term overall balance in the world would be a little bit, yeah. a little bit better, right? Mm -hmm. Especially in, uh, I mean, we're in Los Angeles where it's a pretty high stress and high tense environment. I mean, mm -hmm. just going out and getting about every day is kind of at this point a challenge for a lot of people, you know, yeah. we don't give credit to it, but anybody coming from anywhere else where it's a little slower immediately feels the, the pressure of being in Los Angeles, you know, mm -hmm. we had a guest, uh, two days ago, Austin. Yeah. That came and he was riding a motorcycle out here. He came for the show and, uh, immediately he talked about coming from, he has a farm in Oklahoma now, but he's from Colorado. And, uh, immediately he talked about like the tension of like, just the everyday interactions and flow of Los Angeles and how how heavy it was to like feel this this you know yeah and then how he doesn't even really try to come out this way anymore because of it yeah. it's not for everybody I mean obviously I feel like New York carries much more attention than LA does it's a little bit more fast and I was just in London and it was pretty like hyper intensive, it's a lot going on, you know, I, I kind of thrive in those environments, but I get it. I do feel the energy too, you know? Yeah, I can go either way. I yeah. know. I love the peacefulness too. I love to get back to nature and have some, mm -hmm. some open air thought, you know? Yeah. Anything that you wanted to, uh, you had personally that we have the doctor in front of us at the moment? No, it was just more validation of my retarded ways. Uh, <laughs> Are we saying that word? I don't think we're saying that word anymore. No, no, but yeah. talking about myself, not anybody else. Okay. Um, no, you put a lot of light on new, you know, why I function a certain way and just the stuff that understanding where I was a couple of years ago and where I'm at today and just seeing the progress and just the pleasure thing really resonated home because okay, I'll go indulge ice cream, but I usually inhale it. I don't like sit there and truly enjoy it, even though that's something I really want. Yeah. And it's that two to five minutes a day of just enjoying something that doesn't have to be sexual, but just enjoying whatever that might be. Yeah. I mean, it could even be like sitting in some grass, right? And like feeling the grass on your skin and wiggling your feet and your toes in it and giving yourself permission to just feel that and enjoy it. It can be really simple things, but it goes a long way. It's uh, coming from my acting background and doing like sense memory and like method acting mm -hmm. when I was mm -hmm. a child and taking those courses. This is exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Like playing with weird stuff and experiencing the way it feels. Mm -hmm. This is like super, it's like super in depth. Like uh, the method was taught by Stanislavski as a Russian cat that kind of brought that to film um, the theater first and then film Strasberg. Lee Strasberg brought it into our American culture. Mm -hmm. But most of like your favorite actors and things have been taught in this manner. But it's very, it's not like scene study or script analysis. It's like sense memory of like savoring, enjoying, really doing in depth character work of like what 
your toes feel like in a grass mm -hmm. or how you would move as a different type of animal and all of these things. So it's cool to hear like it's bringing back all of these childhood memories of being in class and them kind of going through those motions of nice. really experiencing our inner workings and connecting with these characters and things through our own perception of our uh, surroundings and, and things. Yeah. We need to take a little bit of time and step back and... Uh, oh, yeah, I'm always on the go. Savor things a little bit more, even in our relationships with our mm -hmm. children, with the people around us. Mm -hmm. Appreciate. It's easy to lose and have loss and to ask why and, and, and regret all of these uh, things that we didn't uh, savor in the moment with mm -hmm. them or the experiences that we let pass and didn't think about. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Take more time to uh, just appreciate what is around us. I guess slow down and connect and free yourself from everything else. Yeah. And and rediscover what is familiar in new ways, right? Which you reminded me of that when you were talking about with partners, right? It's easy for us to habituate to our partners and for our partners to kind of blend into the wallpaper. And we see them every day and we start to take them for granted and we think we know everything about them and their inner experience, but we don't because we're all dynamic humans. We're always like growing, changing, evolving, learning new things, being exposed to new things. So taking this, um, taking a position of like being constantly curious with your partner is a great way to stay in the presence of novelty with your partner. And novelty is really fun, right? Like we, novelty gives us dopamine and that creates more opportunities for lust. It creates more opportunities for desire, right? So like staying in that investigating place, like, who are you today? What's new with you? What do you know? What do you know today that you didn't know yesterday? And like, that's a really little simple stuff, but it creates like a lot of texture in relationships that is, uh, fodder for a lot of good stuff it's like a daily trick yeah i should start journaling <laughs> i need a little bit of that probably i've had therapists tell me that over the years I'm yeah like, i never really got into it but it's a it's a really good tool creatively as well to just kind of let i mean i've read about so much of it from writing standpoints and different mm -hmm. things of like sitting down at the typewriter and just kind of them just kind of going crazy, letting everything out of them before they even settle in to start creating because it's like we have so much rolling around up here that we don't mm -hmm. get out or don't express. And some of it's gibberish and ramblings, but, you know, I guess it's like meditating and not holding on to thoughts, but letting them pass through. I think it's helpful to kind of script it out and bring it into life. Yeah, it's super helpful. It's, it, you know, as much as it is a cognitive exercise, it's also a somatic exercise if you handwrite. So it can That's be... I was going to ask, do you prefer handwriting over someone like typing it out? If I'm working with someone and they're working through something hard, I often do ask them to handwrite it because, well, for a few reasons. One, when we're typing, we kind of, you know, go into the technology a little bit and we can check out from our emotional experience a little bit more readily. But when we're handwriting something, we can only think and write as fast as we can 
Right. So we have to slow down our thoughts, which means that we're more likely to be in touch with the emotions that come up, right? Because we're going to be more present with them as we're writing something down. Typing, you can spit out a whole sentence. And even if you botch it, you can go back later. Yeah. So handwriting is a great way to access different emotions and, and allow that to be a more cathartic experience. Yeah, for sure. If writing and journaling is something that is interesting, right? A lot of people aren't down for that and that's okay. There's other ways to get into that stuff. How is it being a therapist in a personal setting for you? Do you have trouble? (laughs) Does it like, is it easier to speak for other people than to communicate in your own relationship? Well, for any of us in our own relationship, right? We, we sometimes get in our own way and we can only see the tip of our own noses. So therapists are not uh, exempt from that. But um, being a therapist is helpful in many ways in my relationship because I've had so much education and I have so many tools that are literally just right there at my disposal that can help enhance the relationship that I'm in. But it can be tricky because the longer you do this work and the more you're in this work, it can be hard to find a partner who has done that kind of work in their own lives sometimes. And so it can sometimes create a bit of a chasm in the way that partners communicate and the expectations that they have for relationship. So a lot of therapists, um, especially women, and there are more female therapists than there are male therapists. Um, but a lot of, you know, women end up doing a lot more of the emotional labor than they would have anyway in their relationship if they're a therapist. So it really requires having a partner who's willing to do, you know, equitable amounts of emotional labor for anyone for that relationship to be really healthy. Um, but with a therapist, might mean that partner steps up a little bit more than maybe they might have in other relationships. And not everyone wants to do that. I'm sure you can hear the the stop analyzing me type of it's easy for partners to be like, you know, I could assume that there's some tension coming back and forth where people feel like, uh, I don't know, you have more tools at your disposal. So people could feel a little bit more manipulated or you could just be trying to get somebody to open up and they can put it on you as a as a yeah being used or intimidated in some sense definitely a slippery type of uh thing yeah you have to be cautious with when therapists are in grad school i i i teach a lot and so one of the things that we talk about with students is how they know just enough to be dangerous yeah <laughs> And, and I think that's true with any profession that you go in, you're excited about it, you're learning and you want to just practice that and you see it everywhere. And so a lot of therapists struggle with having good boundaries around how they talk about what they're learning and how they apply it with their family, with their friends, with their partners. But I think as many therapists are in the field longer and probably learn from their own messiness in that space. Um, they get better at not analyzing their partner, not you know telling their partner about themselves, and and it can hopefully be uh, constructive and not destructive. Yeah, that's that's well said. I was curious about that. <laughs> I didn't um, even think about that. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, because it can be intimidating, of course, and then it can take you to a place. Well, I mean, if you're 
can be liberating if you're open to the fact yeah. that you have somebody that can help you go places that you're okay with. But mm -hmm. if you're feeling, uh, you know, anxious or uncomfortable expressing things, then you could, it's easy to lash out and say, you know, you're manipulating me or, or taking me somewhere I don't want to go or I'm not comfortable in, you know? Yeah. I, I've never really had the opportunity to ask somebody, so it's a good, <laughs> it's a good space for that. Oh, yeah. It's a safe space. Um, <laughs> is there anything we didn't touch that you wanted to get to? I feel like we pretty much we touched a lot of shit. Yeah, I think there were some really good gems there for especially our probably heavy male audience. Um, that is, uh, I think we have a good mix of, of, of listeners, but in general, like the guys that want to learn from this and kind of like even my main be more vulnerable and expressive in all types of relationships yeah so, like even my main social channel that's 90 percent male and yeah i'm sure a majority maybe 80 percent or higher aren't even willing to or haven't seen i think it's good to see even men that are um looked at in a a very male driven space and that they're willing to sit down and have an open dialogue about this and ask these questions. I think it's good for all of us to uh, get outside of ourselves sometimes and try to learn and grow. And, and uh, I know I could definitely use it because, you know, I'm not the best at expressing my personal feelings. No. Or having them at all. I think they're quite a bit, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I, I'm sure I get accused of that much more than anything else. I'm sure they're there, but I guess I stuff better than, than most. There's that Alexa Thymia piece. Yeah. You stuff and then you pop. Yeah. 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 I don't know that I stuff and then pop and then stuff and then pop. I think that I just kind of... Uh, yeah. I'm not even going to go down the road, I guess. You're like a duck. It just rolls right off your back. No, I mean, I definitely pop off quite a bit, but I think, I don't know if it's like from express, like built up uh, issues as much as it is. Uh, I don't know. I definitely need some work on it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's some, some private, some private therapy issue for sure. I think I could, uh, I could definitely benefit from that. I've never done therapy at all either. So it's a, I, I've read quite a bit. We've interviewed some people. I've watched a lot of, uh, of studies and things and mm -hmm. documentaries and people in therapy and stuff. So I'm not uh, opposed to it per se, but uh, it's just not something that I haven't, um, you know, walked in the office and sat down and started talking, I guess. Yeah, I get that. I'm super biased, obviously, because I am a psychologist and I think yeah. therapy can benefit just about anyone, but therapy is not something that everyone wants to do. And that's okay. There are lots of other ways to explore self-development and growth and healing. It doesn't have to be with a therapist, but community is super important, right? And having at least one person that you feel you can go to for something and be your whole self with that's usually what creates a sense of security in the world is having at least one person, but luckily more than, or hopefully more than one, right? The yeah. more we have folks surrounding us and supporting us in non-judgmental ways, safer we feel. And when we feel safe, man, we can do a lot of stuff, a lot of really cool things. 
yeah, it's it's a having my friends come to me with relationship issues is usually like a very one sided. Mm -hmm. More venting frustration mm -hmm. and then looking to a common uh, mindset around that to like mm -hmm. express this uh, uh, for them to get it off their chest. Mm -hmm. It's less of like, you know, this really made me feel like this. And, yeah. you know, so we're not really expressing like how that made us feel or why we're challenged or whatever it is. It's more like, can you believe that? You know, we're, we look for it even in not the, the way to uh, help us get through it mm -hmm. or, or stop feeling that way about it. So, yeah, yeah. We, could use, we could use some help for sure. Everybody can. Yeah. Um, anything before we wrap up that uh, you want to add? Obviously, please tell us where everybody can find you and the practice, the website. Yeah, thanks. Um, the practice name is Modern Intimacy, so people can check out our website, modernintimacy.com. We do have therapists in seven states, so we've got New York, Florida, Illinois, Minnesota, Texas, Colorado, and California. And then we've got a couple of coaches who are trained and also supervised by me working on the team and work with folks internationally. So I've got an amazing team and um, modernintimacy.com is the best place. People can check out my podcast, Get Naked with Dr. Kate. I talk about a lot of these same things, um, sex, relationships, mental health, and yeah, I think that's probably it. TikTok, Instagram at Dr. Kate Balistrieri. Do you do in person in Los Angeles? Right now, my team and I are all virtual, but probably in 2024, I'll open up a physical space again. Okay, cool. Yeah. The virtual is good. I, I think that sometimes that helps in that space as well. Yeah, giving the listeners an option of yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. but i i can do some in-person things it's just more on a concierge basis now yeah understood yeah appreciate you coming out yeah thanks so much for inviting me if this was fun for you it was certainly fun for me yeah okay. it was good i uh picked up a couple of tools and uh it was good in my headspace of uh in my own relationships to kind of you know hear some things that i needed to work on mm -hmm. Same. Yeah. And I think that it'll be helpful for the listeners as well. Uh, you had some great points and very well spoken. And uh, we appreciate your time and look Thank forward you. to, you know, all the good things to come from, from the practice. Thanks. Like, comment, subscribe. See you guys on the next one.